Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Hi everybody, welcome to Talking Biotech number 35. And today is, and I always start out saying, and today's a really interesting podcast. <laughs> I do the same thing every week. So today we have a rather, uh, uh, I know it's, it is interesting, that's the problem. Um, I have good guests, and uh, today is no exception. Today is uh, Dr. Jason Lusk. And Dr. Jason Lusk gave us a call, and we were able to talk about his new book called Unnaturally Delicious, which really explores some of the ways in which humans have intervened in the food process, meaning either in genetics or production, to do something that nature never could do. And I think these discussions are really important because in a day where we're bombarded with this idea of nature being the best solution to everything, uh, really reminds us that it's human innovation that really drives um, our choices and gives us um, better options. So um, we'll catch up with that in just a few minutes. A couple of changes that we'll do in forthcoming weeks is um, I've noticed that I've gotten some uh, comments about uh, how I need to dial it down a touch sometimes when we talk about the technology. And I think what we'll do is use this first minute or so to talk about the technologies that will show up in the episode. And that way everybody can start on the same page and maybe it'd be a little bit more meaningful discussion. And that way maybe you have a little wider reach. So that's something coming up in the future. Someone else also asked if... I could talk about my own research, and uh, what I'll do is I'll uh, find a way to uh, to do that at some point, maybe as a special episode. But we're also working on a, a series of videos and other media that will describe these processes, how genetic engineering works, what are the traits, how do they function, and try to provide some media that make this very simple and approachable. Um, that's something also that we're thinking about um, in the near future. And when I say we're, I mean me. <laughs> and people ask, I was up at Michigan State this week and had a wonderful time with students and faculty there. And many people were surprised that I actually um, am the host and the producer and the website webmaster and everything for Talking Biotech Podcast. The other comment I had this week was that it's called Talking Biotech and how that must turn off 
a lot of potential listeners. And I really do need to seriously think about that because half of what we talk about is nothing to do with biotechnology or has limited influence of biotechnology. So traditional breeding, domestication, we can learn about those things using biotech and that's why I always thought the name was justified. However, it seems like folks who might be looking for something to listen to about where food comes from may think that this has an implicit bias that really it doesn't. So, um, you know, we have to think about how to handle that problem too. Maybe call it talking bio and tech. (laughs) I don't know. But that's a problem for another day. Uh, Today we'll talk to Dr. Jason Lusk. Uh, His book was wonderful to go through. I was able to do it in a very short time. It's an easy read and uh, really recommend. He'll really recommend Unnaturally Delicious. Uh, He'll be here in the next few minutes to talk for about an hour on his new book and hit some of the highlights. So here we go to Dr. Jason Lusk. So today on the Talking Biotech podcast, we take this in a little different direction, that usually we're talking to the people who are making the technology and understanding the ways to solve problems using technology, but uh, sometimes it's good to look at the people who measure its effects on society and and measure its effects economically. And I'm really happy to have with me today uh, Dr. Jason Lusk. He comes to us all the way from uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma State University. Um, And uh, welcome to the podcast, Jason. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. So we, we're going to start out with a couple different things. I mentioned in the introduction that you're a you know prolific author, not just for scientific work, but also a really user-friendly uh, uh, popular press and, and really admire that about you. And the most recent one is Unnaturally Delicious. And could you give us an overarching theme of what that book is about? And then we'll go through some of the individual parts um, maybe that are relevant to, to this particular audience. Sure. So it's it's a popular book aimed at a, a general audience, not 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 a necessarily an academic one. And really, my attempt here is to try to bring uh, to the attention of sort of the average food consumer some of the really cool and neat things that are happening in terms of food research and agricultural technology. And I think that's important because so much of what people read about food these days is really pessimistic, and it seems that people have a lot of negative views about food and agriculture because, quite frankly, bad news tends to sell. And so I think they miss often the stories of of what good is happening. And moreover, that, yes, we can agree there are problems in the food sector, uh, but it's, it's also important for people to know that there are hardworking scientists and entrepreneurs and innovators out there trying to work on technologies to help improve uh, human health, to help improve environmental outcomes, um, to help make food less expensive, to, to, to help with food security, that there are people hard at work doing these things. I think just the, the average person just doesn't really know that. And so this book is my attempt to tell some of those stories. One of the big ones is this idea of um, 3D printing of food. And, <laughs> right. And I, to me, this makes total sense. I heard about this on NPR once where they essentially said they were go- you'd go to an ATM machine and be able to punch in what you wanted, and then it would 
print it. <laughs> so what, what what's really happening in this sector? Yeah, well, we're, we're not quite yet to the Captain Kirk food re- replicator, but we're, we're making small steps in that direction. So uh, there are some engineers uh, out of Cornell and Columbia. They've been working on this idea of 3D printed food. The actual story of how they got started is really interesting. Uh, they were working on just 3D printing in general, and most uh, listeners have probably seen the the 3D printers that can print figurines and these kind of things in plastics. And apparently they were, they were working on a problem where there's something called overhang. So imagine trying to print a pyramid, but upside down. And I suppose the trouble is the upper layers on the top tend to sag and fall down until everything can harden. So they were trying to find a way to fix this problem. And, and they thought, well, we just need some substance to hold it in place until everything's dried and then we can wash it away. And one of the researchers had the idea to use frosting. And uh, uh, one of the researchers noticed his grad students were eating the frosting instead of <laughs> washing it away. And, and they thought, well, why don't we just print something in frosting? And uh, so the, the idea sort of went from there. And, and, uh, and so really any food that can be put into a, a so- somewhat soft or moldable form can be printed. So that would include things like chocolates. Uh, it could include pastas. It could include cheeses uh, and a whole host of other uh, types of food products. And um, yeah, I, I would say there's you know it's, it's still in the early stages. I don't, uh, it's it's a bit of a slow process at still. So they're working on that. But one of the really neat things about it is uh, the sort of I think people probably have a tendency to think about something like this as a processed food. And of course, processed foods have all kinds of negative connotations. But, you know, the reality is uh, it's kind of the opposite of processed food in the sense that it's customizable. So, Kevin, you can create a food with your uh, university's logo on it with an extra amount of vitamin A, and I can make my granola bar or cookie with uh, an OSU cowboy on it and put uh, extra amounts of uh, omega-3 fatty acids. And so, you know, it's this idea of uniqueness and customizability that's really interesting. And moreover, you know, uh, you can anything, as I said, that's soft or moldable, you can put in there. You can put a local organic pea puree <laughs> into a, a 3D food printer if you wanted. Um, and so uh, it's really neat. You can imagine a day, perhaps one day, where, where uh, you've come up with some delicacy. You it's a computer file. You put it out there online. Anybody can download it. You share it with your friends, and you, you can make what I made at your own home 3D printer. So it's, I think it's really interesting stuff and kind of points, I think, to uh, the way that food and agricultural technologies have made life a lot easier in the kitchen. Now, whether this 3D food printer actually takes off or not, of course, remains to be seen. But I think it's just another example of the kinds of things that have made cooking and eating more pleasurable. And uh, if you go back and look at data, for example, they, uh, researchers have been collecting time use data. These are surveys that have been sending to households on, on how people spend their time. They've been doing this since the 60s. And if you go back and look, you know, we spend uh, today in the kitchen, uh, females in particular spend about 60 to 70 percent less time in meal preparation, about 80 to 100 percent less time in meal cleanup. And uh, I don't know, that sounds like great news to me. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's, it's, I think it's great if, if people like to cook, want to cook. But the reality is for a lot of people, especially the day in, day out chore, it, it is something that a lot of people don't look forward to. And so to have convenient foods and convenient technologies that free us up to spend time in other ways is, I think, really incredible. Another example I also give in the book that's a kitchen technology is a robot kitchen. So there are researchers uh, in a company based out of London that are working on precisely this idea. And this is not a rolling robot that's going to talk to you, but rather it's 
robotic arms that are sort of attached above a kitchen stove and and near some kitchen appliances and the way they've made these work is they put sensors on the arms and hands of of celebrity chefs and it records their movements as they're cooking and these uh, movements can be you know turned into digital information which then a robotic arm can replicate so you know we may one day uh not only have to 3d print our food but we can uh, send a message to our home robot cook and have dinner waiting when we get there that's really cool it like to me i know i, I heard the on the interview i heard alice waters was not pleased uh she's <laughs> the one who uh, advocates for slow food and uh you know and i understand where she comes from and how people would freak out because food is such a cultural uh, you know, so many social and cultural overlays, but at the same time, I hammer you know glass of soylent in the morning, and I'm good to go <laughs> till dinner. And it's more about having time to do other stuff, just as you mentioned. But this goes one beyond just the preparation of food and the availability of a, of a meal. It really can go down to the ingredients. And I know you spent some time in the book talking about synthetic biology and the way we can actually generate compounds that are useful for humans. You want to touch on that just a bit? Sure. And, you know, these are areas that probably some of your listeners know even better than I do. But what I, again, what I wanted to try to do is pick some examples that I thought the general food consuming public would would not be that knowledgeable of. And moreover, try to, quite frankly, pick some examples that are somewhat sympathetic. So there are lots of, you know, big food companies working on all kinds of really neat, interesting applications. But I think one of the aversions some people have to biotechnology is uh, they see it as some sort of uh, capitalistic uh, overlords taking over over our food system. You know, that, that's not a view I, I hold, but it is certainly one of the oppositions people have to these technologies. So I, I tried to find some examples where um, – you know, this was clearly not the motivation that was driving uh, driving the innovators. So, he, uh, the one of the, the couple of examples I used came from a compet- a student competition. So, iGem is the name of the of the student competition. I think it stands for Internationally Genetically Engineered Machine Competition. And MIT has been putting this thing on for I don't know, probably almost a decade now. And I believe last year there were a couple of hundred teams consisting of high school and college students, and they're using synthetic biology for all kinds of applications, and a lot of them do relate to food and agriculture. So I talked to a couple of the the prize-winning teams from 2014. Uh, One team was out of UC Davis, and uh, what they did is they genetically altered a bacteria to test for rancidity in olive oil. And this was something actually I, I didn't know, but it makes sense once the students told me about it, that a lot of the olive oil that we eat here in the in the States is rancid. It's gone stale by the time it gets here because it's traveled from Europe, typically by boat. And uh, rancid doesn't necessarily mean it tastes terrible or anything like that. Uh, it just means that it's it might have actually lost some of its advantageous properties. So, uh, you know, olive oil is supposed to be a relatively healthy oil for us to eat, but it's not as healthy if it goes goes sour. And in fact, uh, one of the things they did is conducted a taste test with uh, consumers, had them taste uh, some olive oil that had gone rancid and compared it to the fresh olive oil. And most of their tasters preferred the stale olive oil because it's what we're so used to eating. <laughs> so that was kind of surprising. <laughs> but apparently they there weren't good, uh, inexpensive means for to test for rancidity of olive oil. And so they genetically engineered a bacteria that would uh, send a signal, if you will, uh, of when it d- detected certain aldehydes um, that are associated with rancidity. And so what they did is they made like a sort of a, a strip or, or a, I'm sorry, it was an electronic sensor that would create a digital readout 
was related to the signal that these bacteria put out to test for rancidity. And it also had a public policy implication because uh, out in California, they've started growing more olives to create domestic olive oil. And there was this sort of problem about quality and concerns about quality in the state legislature there was trying to put in place standards and it was unclear how those standards should be based and and how you should measure things like rancidity so here these students were along with their faculty advisors uh trying to create um some new technology to, to help set all of olive oil standards so that was one example and another team i talked to was uh, out of a university in hong kong and they created what, what we probably could call a probiotic but essentially a bacteria they they uh, genetically altered a bacteria so that it would eat fat and turn it into um, other healthier compounds. So this DHA that you probably see sometimes if you if you've had kids or you go down the baby formula aisle, this is a, mm-hmm. something that's supposed to be good for brain development. Yes. Uh, and so um, this one they haven't actually they've created the bacteria, they haven't done uh, human tests of it yet so still in the early stages but the idea here is that we have all kinds of bacteria in our stomachs and our guts and they do a lot of good things for us and and so maybe here's a way we can use genetic engineering to help solve a big problem like obesity if we can take calories that are relatively unhealthy and use the bacteria that are already living inside of us to turn them into something that's perhaps a little healthier for us so you know that one's probably a little more speculative but it is something that's created and and the cool thing is uh, if you look at this competition there are dozens and dozens of teams of students and you know they can look out at the world we see and see that we have some problems Uh, one team was working on this problem with bananas that a lot of people are probably familiar with that that there's a, a disease issue in bananas that's that's potentially threatening this supply of banana crops and so you know what can we do to, to uh, use either bacteria or fungus in the soil and uh, to, to help solve these problems so anyway this, there's many many examples there and I think again the really cool thing about it is this is not some big evil conglomerate of some sort these are students trying to bring the knowledge they've learned in the classroom to help address the problems that we see out in the real world. Yeah, it's interesting because um, in, in reality, I am a shill for students. I mean, I'm a, I'm a paid <laughs> shill for education. And uh, so if there's anybody I need to be pimping their work, it's these kids. Um, but you also talk about another extension of the same idea as we look at a distribution of vitamins worldwide, how you know you see so many cases throughout the world where malnutrition is, is rampant and frequently dependent upon a single micronutrient um, or small suite of micronutrients, and it's not enough to just deliver vitamin pills. And so what were some of the thoughts on that? Yeah, so, you know, as you've pointed out, you know, we, we do have big problems with malnutrition, vitamin deficiency in many parts of the world. And it, it is, you know, one of the proposals is to indeed deliver um, just vitamins to people, and that, that is probably the best solution in some circumstances. Uh, but the problem with that is you've got to do it every single year um not just every year every day or month uh is so that people are not continually becoming deficient in these vitamins so it's not just a one-time fix to deliver this vitamin so so the thought is if we could get these vitamins somehow in the foods that people are routinely planting and eating once we've got it in that food supply chain then it will be there permanently and so we don't have to continually develop and and disseminate these vitamins and some of the the hardest places to reach in the world. So uh, golden rice, for example, is probably one uh, most of your listeners have heard of and that people are are well aware of. And again, this is uh, taking taking rice and introducing a gene from uh, daffodil that that 
produces beta carotene, which our body can turn into vitamin A. Uh, it's a good example because rice is a staple crop in many parts of the world. And yeah, we, we, what we would really like, of course, is people in many of these countries to have a more diversified diet, to eat lots of different foodstuffs. But you know, we, we're, we're not quite at that utopia yet. People still rely on a handful of staple crops. And so to the extent that's still going to happen, if we could introduce a new variety that can provide some vitamins, um, you know, I think that is a potential solution. I think it's people often probably underestimate how big of an issue this is. There's a, a group out of um, out in Copenhagen. It's called the Copenhagen Consensus that tries to do a cost-benefit analysis on a whole host of interventions that people could do worldwide. This includes things like you know mitigating climate change, and uh, you know there's like a hundred different issues. And a few years back, one of the things they they rated most highly on their list of in terms of providing the biggest bang for the buck providing the most benefit for the least cost was this issue of providing you know micronutrients to people in developing countries either through biofortification breeding crops that are higher in micronutrients or even through you know just delivering vitamins so this this is a big deal and it's a big deal that we can potentially address in a relatively cost-effective manner Um, but you know it's not just golden rice that's the one a lot of us have heard of but there are many many other examples some of them biotechnology examples so you know breeding bananas for example that have higher um, vitamin content but there's also a lot of examples where we have crops that are higher in nutrients or even in minerals so plants don't produce minerals but you can uh, have different varieties of plants that have higher mineral availability or some of them have can uptake more minerals through, through its um, roots and it, from the soil and a lot of this has been done through conventional breeding and there's even company or um, not companies but nonprofits out there harvest plus is one that i've worked with in the past that's working in a lot of different countries including rwanda and guatemala trying to produce high iron beans so they're beans that are higher in iron content to help prevent anemia and so you know what you see out there is a, a, a mix of both biotechnology applications and conventional breeding applications um, that are trying to increase vitamin content and, re- and reduce malnutrition in, and quite frankly some of the most impoverished places in the world it's an interesting um, aspect of this is that it also respects the cultural sensitivities of people we're trying to feed you know that uh, others say well just give them kale and spinach and let them eat that stuff and it's like <laughs> but, but you know they don't want that necessarily and you know it allows us to take their their own crops that they've had generally generationally that they understand that they grow locally and uh, allow us to use technology to make them one better i think i think that's actually a really good point because what has happened if you look at a lot of places and sort of the developing uh, economic development that has been tried is what we do is we take our Western crops and say, well, what you should really be doing is planting these. And we, you know, we encourage the, a whole group of people to switch over to some other crop, which actually in the end doesn't, isn't well suited to that particular environment or as you say, to their cultural situation. And so, um, you, you know, that this sort of top-down development, if you will, is one that often has led to unintended consequences. So if this, you're right. It is a more bottom-up approach to say, well, let's look at what you're actually eating and see if we could just make small changes uh, to that. But I, I still think one of the big challenges, even with these biotech crops or the, the new crops, is consumer acceptance. Um, I told a story in the book of one of my former students uh, who's from Mozambique. And he actually he came to me with his research idea as a master student. He already knew what he wanted to work on. And in Mozambique, 
um, there are a lot of vitamin A deficiency problems. And so the government there, along with some international aid organizations, have been working on um, sweet, a, a version of sweet potato. So it's not quite the same as what we think of as a sweet potato, but nonetheless, one that was much higher in vitamin content. But even though they created the thing, you know, people weren't all that willing to eat it. And so that's why he spent his master's thesis working on is what's the problem with this uh, crop? Why aren't people actually buying it and willing to eat it? And as it turned out, it had to deal mainly with an issue of texture. It wasn't the same texture as what they were accustomed to buying. And so this, this combination of not just, you know, we want people to eat more micronutrients, but we need to put it in a form that people are willing and want to eat. And so he, at least in his case, was able to go back home. He's I still works with a potato breeding center there um, with some information to say, hey, if, if, if we're going to also breed these potatoes that have higher micro, micronutrients, we need to also make sure that we include other characteristics a consumer uh, cares about, like texture and firmness and that sort of thing. Yeah, it really shows that the consumer is a finicky creature. And you don't have to go, I mean, those of us who remember how they switched from Coke to New Coke, <laughs> that it was a uh, you know different way of putting sugar water in a can, and people rejected it. And <laughs> and, and this is, you know, first world problem, you know. Um, but I can imagine, uh, but what is it that makes, you've given us three very nice examples just in our time talking today about a new way to assemble food, a new way to maybe generate these molecular machines that could be of great benefit, and then ways of delivering vitamins to... Um, impoverished nations um why are people so opposed to these kinds of ideas well i think it's a really complex issue it, there's it's not a single thing that that makes uh, you know that's increased aversion so I'll, I'll touch on maybe a few of them one is that there there probably is a probably a bit of a built-in natural human tendency to be skeptical of new foods so Michael Pollan, who I disagree with on many fronts, one of the things I do agree with is the title of one of his best-selling books, The Omnivore's Dilemma. And what he points to is a psychological concept that a guy named Paul Rosen came up with. And, and it's this idea that as omnivores, we face a dilemma uh, because we have to be adventuresome. We need to go find new foodstuffs so that we can uh, stay, you know, be alive. We can adapt to new situations, uh, deal with the risks we face. But we also have to be cautious. You know, we can uh, we eat a particular berry or mushroom; it could kill us. <laughs> and so, uh, it's this trade-off, this dilemma that faces us. That's driven a lot of you know of our humanity over, over the past you know dozens and dozens of uh, years. And so, uh, yeah, when a new technology comes along, there's probably going to be some built-in aversion to that. We, we're going to be a little skeptical of it. And so I think what we want to do, what I try to encourage people to do is to take that probably what some healthy skepticism, but combine it with so that what we what we actually know, the best science, the best information that we have to make an informed choice, not just a gut uh, a choice that's based on some you know sentiment or, or emotion that's embedded in our psyche in some way. So I think there's that uh, part of it. You know, another uh, sort of thing too. I think from the psychology literature suggests that typically we're going to just we're going to be more sensitive to risks, to, to potential losses relative to gains. So people, you know, tend to uh, uh, how do what's the best way to say this? Probably is to think about uh, losing a dollar hurts worse than gaining a dollar feels good. So we're, we are wired apparently to be sensitive to, to losses rather than gains. And that also feeds into the things that get, get pitched to us in the media and in news stories. It's one of the reasons when you turn on your nightly news that um, that 
the, it, it's something bad on the news. It's typically not the good, the good, and and partly that's human nature. It's what sells. It's what we want to pay attention to. So I think that often will will create a bit of a distorted picture in people's minds that um, that things are really worse than they actually are. And then I think another important dimension to all this is something I referred to earlier, and that's this sort of uh, anti-corporation sentiment. That uh, and I'm sure we'll touch on this later when we talk about some of my research. But you know, most people really just don't know that much about biotechnology. But what they, a lot of people, do think is that well, I'm really skeptical of anything that corporations do, and these evil companies will do anything to make a buck, and, and they'll sacrifice human health. And so it, it's that sort of sentiment. It's not that I've carefully evaluated the pros and cons of this particular technology, but rather I'm just skeptical of anything coming from big business or these big pharmaceutical or chemical companies. And and so I, I don't want to embrace or adopt any technology that might benefit them. So it's just almost a concern about equity and distribution in the food supply chain that probably drives a lot of the aversion. And I think the last thing I'll lay on top of all this too, and it's it sort of gets to the title of my book, Unnaturally Delicious, which is, uh, you know, a title uh, uh, that, that sort of jars many people because we don't normally think about the word unnatural and delicious going together. And, and people just have a sort of, you know, romanticism about the past and how things used to be that, man, things were really great in the 1940s or 50s. That, that, that was the great, you know, the great time. And I think throughout history, you can see lots of examples of that, of people thinking the past was better. You know, every generation thinks the kids of this generation, you know, I'm older now, so my kids' generation, well, they're, all, they're all going to hell in a handbasket. You know, they don't have the ideals and things we do. And, and I think that sort of bleeds over into this food these food issues that we look back and, and we want things to be like they used to be. Um, but I think, you know, if we're just even a little bit self-critical or just, you know, take any look at the evidence, what we have seen throughout history is just a constant evolution in food and agriculture. And I would say a large part for the good, um, but there is this probably some psychological, built-in psychological phenomenon that makes us want to romanticize the past yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think, and it, but it's funny. It seems to be personal because for me, I think the best times are in front of us. I, I mm-hmm. seriously see so much progress and so many different gains and so much exciting change. And, and to think that 20 years ago, you know, I wasn't walking around with a computer in my pocket that allowed me <laughs> access to everything, you know, but uh, good times are in front of us. And I guess, let me, uh, let's do this. Let's take um, a, just a short break here. And then when we come back on the other side, we'll talk a little bit about the same ideas, about how technology exists, how uh, consumers are a little curious or concerned, and then to see how that applies to your research and ideas about product labeling. So we'll be right back with uh, Jason Lusk on Talking Biotech. Hello, Talking Biotechers. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I'd like to turn your attention to the iTunes review page. If you haven't already done it, please go there and write a review of this podcast. Throw us a few stars. I'll wait right here. Ah, just do it later, but the idea is simple. The idea is an opportunity to raise the awareness of this particular podcast. You see, we're already doing very well in the featured science category, actually scoring better than some major podcasts in science. So thank you for that. 
but we always can do better. You see, it's absolutely true that the way to move innovation to application is to get people fired up about new technology, dispelling the fears and raising hopes that new technology can save lives and even save the planet. Even put a few shekels in the pockets of the 1% of people, our farmers and ranchers, that work from dawn to dusk every day to feed us. It's our way of doing a little bit to ensure their equal access to agricultural innovations. So whether it's biotech and genetic engineering or newest varieties from breeding, we can make a difference in helping to share the awareness of what agricultural products really are. So head on over to iTunes, fill out the review, tell a friend, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're back on Talking Biotech Podcast with Professor Jason Lusk from Oklahoma State University, author of Unnaturally Delicious, among other things. But aside from his books, which are um, which are really great because they're written in a way that is uh, easy to consume. You can hammer through one pretty quick, and uh, they're easy to read, and I really enjoy that. But he's hugely prolific in research, and a lot of his research has touched on some of these ideas of, uh, you mentioned before, losing a dollar versus gaining a dollar. You know, how do consumers weigh choices and, and think about these things? And I kind of want to tie all this together based on your research. We talked about great innovations, ideas that could benefit people, but then consumer um, hesitance. And no place have we seen this more than in genetically engineered food products and um, and maybe the issue of labeling. Mm-hmm. And you've done a lot of research on the idea of labels, not just on genetically engineered food, but across different kinds of food. And what do labels really tell us? And how do people read them and respond to what a label says? Yeah, so we, you know, there there have been many hundreds of studies on this topic, so it's, it's probably hard to succinctly summarize it all. But one thing we find is if you if you put a label on a food and and that that signals the presence of GMOs in some way or biotechnology or genetic engineering that most consumers are going to be somewhat averse to that label and so when we ask you know willingness to pay kind of questions most people express some willingness to pay to avoid genetically engineered foods so there's many 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 studies that that have shown that and, and of course it varies a little bit like one of the big areas I'm, of my research focuses on the idea that people don't always do what they say they're going to do so people in surveys will often tell us yeah I'm, I'm really willing to pay to avoid uh, genetically engineered foods but then when we actually observe them in the grocery store we don't often see them do the same thing and so I think I think it's hel- you know it's important to have some healthy skepticism about what people tell us in surveys but even uh, in the with the best research methods we have even with in situations where people have to put their money where their mouth is and actually, you know, if they say they're willing to pay, they actually have to, you know, fork over the dollars, that indeed we still see, uh, you know, a good chunk of the population willing to pay at least a little something to avoid genetically engineered food. So I think there's a, a bit of a distrust or uh, aversion to genetically engineered foods. But all that being said, I think the other really, really important thing here, and the thing that doesn't get discussed very often, is that this is not a firmly held belief that most consumers simply don't know much about this issue. 
And so what I think is going on here is that people see a word, genetic engineering, they don't know much about it. It sounds a little strange, a little scary. So sure, why why not? I'd be willing to pay a a little bit to avoid that. And so what we see is that um, all kinds of, you call them nudges or information, can alter people's perceptions one way or the other. So uh, studies that have given consumers positive information about genetic engineering, uh, for example, can turn that slight aversion towards genetic engineering to uh, a slight willingness to accept. They prefer it. So if we tell them things like it could cut down on uh, insecticide use, for example, people go in for, go from being on average slightly averse to on average slightly preferring. And indeed, one, one study we recently published is that really if we, if we just gave the consumer any reason for why something was genetically engineered, on average, most people were, you know, viewed the technology as more preferable. So I think people just don't know a lot about it. And indeed, uh, one of the studies we, we did uh, a, a couple of years ago, you know, we, we any technology that people don't know anything about. So in this example, we had apples, and we had people making choices between apples that were had labels that were either genetically en- engineered or not. And then we also had those same apples, and some other group of people saw labels that we put on that said that they were ripened with ethylene. So, you know, that, this is a technology a lot uh, that, that's used a lot to um, to ripen apples, used all the time, perfectly safe. In fact, it's the apples, that's what happens when you put you know, various fruits in a bag as they're using their own ethylene to, to ripen up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, what we see is that aversion to ethylene ripening, ripening was as large or larger than aversion to genetic engineering. So, I, you know, again, I think this is an example where we see uh, consumers seeing a word, a technology they just don't know much about. Uh, and this is, of course, all during a, a phase we're in here where people want, quote unquote, clean food and natural food. So anything that doesn't sort of seem to fit in that mindset is something that's going to have a bit of an aversion. But again, I don't see it as something that is firmly fixed. And and just to build on and give a couple more examples there, that same Apple study that I referred to, um, it, it makes a really big difference uh, depending on whether that label is one that's um, what, what we might call mandatory, this contains, versus maybe what we might call a voluntary label, like does not contain. And you get very big differences between the implied aversion to genetic engineering if you have contains versus does not contain labels. And, and um, I, you know, I think, you know, when you find really subtle differences like that causing big differences in the way consumers choose, it tells you they don't have a really firm preference for this sort of thing. And uh, the, the last thing I'll, I'll kind of point to on this uh, labeling front, and I think also is a, a really strong signal of lack of consumer knowledge is that yes, it's true when you ask consumers if they want mandatory labeling on genetically engineered foods that 80-90% of people will say yes, that that is true. But what we also find is if I ask consumers, uh, for example, if they want mandatory labeling on foods that contain DNA, also 80 to 90% of consumers will say yes to that. So that's, of course, an absurd policy because, you know, any any fruit or vegetable uh, that's sitting there in the grocery store is going to have DNA in it. Uh, and so I don't think we could take these questions at face value. I think what people are doing is they're saying, here's a word. I'm not that familiar with it. And um, 
Daniel Kahneman has a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. He's a Nobel Prize winner in economics, even though he's a psychologist. And this is uh, a recent book he had several years uh, – I guess it's about five or six years old where he, he tries to popularize some of his ideas. It's a great book if, if readers are interested in that sort of thing. But he, he talks about these issues and he says uh, you know, what we do as humans sometimes is when we're given a difficult question that you know, it's hard for us to think about. We don't like to think really hard. <laughs> and so we try to make things easier on ourselves. So when I ask people a difficult question, what they do instead of answering that difficult question is they create a simpler version of that question and then give an answer to that simpler question. So I think that's kind of what's going on here is they're not actually thinking about is genetic engineering good or bad or I don't want labeling. What they're essentially doing is saying something like, do I want free information about a word that I'm that's unfamiliar to me? And sure, why wouldn't I say yes to that particular question? And um, it, it, in the last kind of line of evidence on this front is um, that rather than asking people if they want uh, mandatory labels on so-called GMOs, if we instead ask them, how do you want this issue decided? You get a very different perspective. And in particular, we've asked this a couple of different ways. But one way we've asked it is, again, just how do you want the issue of mandatory labeling for genetically engineered foods decided? Uh, They had are presented with a variety of options, including by the FDA, by state ballot initiatives, by state Congress, by the federal Congress. Um, I can't remember all the issues, but that's that's most of them there. And, you know, by a wide margin, I think it's about two thirds of the respondents say we want the issue decided by the FDA. Uh, an, an even, even simpler version of that question is we've asked people, you know, how do you think the issue of mandatory labeling on genetically engineered food should be decided? And just simply ask either by experts or by the views of the average um, American citizen. And about three-quarters of people say by the experts. And and so in both of those variations on that question, what we see here is that people say, well, actually, I don't want these other people, the other consumers like me, (laughs) and uh, deciding (laughs) how this issue is is determined. And and that suggests to me that they're willing to defer to experts. In in a lot of ways, that seems a bit elitist. um, And I've I've read a lot on this topic. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of freedom of choice and individualism. But even in our individual lives, we often refer, defer to experts when we know we don't have enough information. So for example, I might uh, let an accountant do my taxes because they're complicated and confusing and that accountant knows a lot more than I do. Or even when I go buy a car, I might pull up car and driver or even consumer report and, and look look at what their experts have to say to help me make my decision because I know they know a lot more than I do. And so I, I see that in our consumer surveys is that, yeah, I mean, if you ask somebody if they want labels, they'll say, they'll say yes. But if you push on that a little bit and say, well, do you even want to be deciding this? They'll say, no, I, I know I don't have enough information to do it. I'd really prefer somebody that's more knowledgeable than me make this decision. And that's actually a really interesting sidebar because I know that the Center for Food Integrity has done a lot of studies on this and they see that, you know, that the idea of looking for an expert, we do it with medical care. We, well, even that's getting a little weirder. But like you say, you have an accountant do your taxes, you have car and driver for car questions. But when it comes time to ask questions about food science, we might ask our kid's baseball coach or our neighbor. <laughs> And, and and really rely on their evidence. And uh, another interesting sidebar on the on the uh, Kahneman book on uh, thinking fast, thinking slow. There was a great blog yesterday on the angrychef.com that that l- talked about um, our brain the way Kahneman does as Homer Simpson versus Mr. Spock. 
And uh, I, I kept reading it and thinking, this is brilliant. Kahneman would love this. And then the next paragraph was, well, in the book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Um, and it just really was a nice analogy. If I can build on that for a second. And, sure. and so the question is, you're exactly right. People will turn to a, a, a neighbor or a sister-in-law or, or some celebrity for their food advice. And for those of us that have degrees in food science or you know biotechnology or biochemistry, it, it's totally frustrating right mm-hmm. why, why are you paying attention to uh, Gwyneth Paltrow or, or what you know whoever it might be uh, to get your advice about how to eat food uh, but I think you know one of the things Charlie Arnott who's, who's the head of that Center for Food Integrity will, will tell you is and it, and it goes exactly to this you know psychological issue is that um, it's all about sort of shared values and, and who do you trust and it's certainly true in a day and age where we're bombarded with information via social you know social media and regular media media that we can pick and choose who we want to listen to there's not a monolithic voice anymore and so we're going to tend to pick and choose people that we think share our same values and that we think are on our same side and that we think care about our interest and, and uh, i think that in a lot of cases uh, a lot of the people purveying nutritional advice and food advice they're able to do that because they have they have got consumers to believe that they sh- they have a shared set of values that, that I care about your health we're on the same side we're on the same team and that's mo- more important in persuading most people than is actual scientific information and I, I suppose I'm, I'm, pro- I'm not going to be nearly as successful at that as a lot of people purveying dietary advice but that's sort of what I'm trying to do with, with the Unnaturally Delicious book is to say let me agree that I care about our health and we, we both care about our environment, about, about the water our, our kids are going to drink in the future. Let, let's all agree that that's true. And uh, now let me try to tell you some stories about how the, the you know people are working on that problem using science and technology. Because I, th- I think that's really the way towards more effective communication is that I, I've got I've to be somebody you can trust first before you're going to listen to any evidence I have, whether that evidence is good or bad. Exactly. And that, that's one thing that we've learned in academia more and more. And that, uh, especially last year with my dust up, really came from the fact that it looked like I wasn't being forthright or at least could be painted that way. And what's really nice about that and the silver lining is, is that I learned that now by going crazy out of my way to be super transparent, that I'm telling the world I want to earn your trust and that I deserve your trust because I, I do have the, c- the consumer and um, you know the planet's best issues at heart you know and my, my best intentions and so how do you do that and how do you achieve that and you know maybe that ties in with what people say about labeling that it's just being honest and it's just saying what's in the product but is it really I mean if you start looking at your gluten-free water or your um, you know, your hormone-free chicken that never had hormones. Where does being uh, transparent begin and end, and where does it start to confuse the consumer rather than help the consumer? Yeah, so I, I think this idea of a consumer's right to know it is a very compelling argument for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, if we're going to start talking about rights, we also have to balance that against other rights that we have in society so um, we have to balance consumers right to know with a producer's right to privacy and uh, more philosophically you know when does does the government 
have the power to compel a producer uh, to speak in a certain way, to make certain claims. And, you know, I, I, somebody could maybe make a legitimate case that if, if we know, have a very strong scientific evidence that a particular ingredient causes some health risk, that maybe in that case the governments, you know, should compel producers to disclose certain information. So, you know, we see on labels all the time, maybe produced in a plant that contains peanuts, because we know there's a pretty significant share of the population that's allergic to peanuts. So we sort of accept that in, in those cases. But in a case like, you know, genetic engineering, uh, the best science suggests that there aren't any health risks. And so what is the basis for the government being able to compel some producer to speak? It's, it's really hard to come up with one. Um, more, moreover, and you know, I think the challenge here is that genetic engineering is not a genetically engineered food is not a single thing. You know, it's many, many, many thousands of possible things, and so it, it's a label that's extraordinarily imprecise in terms of actually providing information to the consumer on something they may may truly care about. Um, and and so, you know, I think there's sort of that inherent trade off between. In different sorts of rights that different people have in society, and uh, you know, the actual look at the actual economics of what what would happen if a label went in place, I think, is sort of important because you know, if you want to exercise a right to have this sort of information, we have to look at the consequences of that sort of policy. And I, you know, I think it's actually difficult to know what the outcomes would be. But I think the you know the the pro labeling side would say, well. These labels are relatively uh, costless. Food companies are always changing their packaging. It's just a cost of business. And so the cost of mandatory labels is, is essentially just the price of ink. And, and, and of course, they're, they're right about that that particular part of it. But I think what the people opposed to labels would say is you got to look at the second order effects, that how are companies and consumers going to respond to these labels if they're in place. And I think the fear is that if companies are required to put a mandatory you know, GMO label, um, what will happen is, as I pointed out in my research already, most consumers are going to be averse to that label. They don't know much about it. It's a little bit of a scary word. And so a lot of consumers are going to try to avoid products that have a, a may-contained you know, genetic engineering label on, on the food. Food retailers, knowing that, don't want to lose customers or market share, and and so they're they're going to want to try to source non-GM foods, and that's the outcome that I think a lot of people are worried about because that could really drive up the cost of food um, because it's more expensive to pr- produce non-genetically engineered crops, and um, and so that that competitive pressure between companies not wanting to lose market share is something that could sort of lead the market market to unravel for genetically engineered foods. And, and that particular outcome, if that's what emerged, could be somewhat costly. There are estimates that range anywhere from 500 to over $1,000 per year per household. And, uh, you know, uh, which of those outcomes happen? You know, it's, it's plausible that food companies may just shrug their shoulders, put the label on and go on with life. And the costs aren't, aren't all that large. Um, so I uh, I don't think we actually know what the outcome will be, but it'll be somewhere in between those two. I, I think for me, this issue of labeling, the, the thing that makes me a little more worried isn't the, the probably the actual cost of sourcing non-GM products that you see estimated in, in several of these studies. It, it's really more that if we create a culture and an environment that is hostile to new food innovation, food and agricultural innovation, we're going to get less of it. Uh, if if scientists, when they create a new biotechnology, can't get food retailers to adopt it because they're worried about consumer concerns, there are all kinds of new technologies we may never see because we've created a market environment that's hostile toward them. 
so it's those foregone innovations that that I worry about the most that I think could impose much larger opportunity costs, the costs of, of not having a better world that we could have had otherwise if we'd had an environment that was more open to food and agricultural technologies. And so admittedly, that's that's somewhat uh, you know, speculative those costs, but I think they're very real, and, and and I can see it looking around just to other technologies and talking to my scientist friends at universities. They've got really interesting biotech applications that are sitting on the shelf that they're not going to commercialize because it's way too expensive to go through the regulatory process to do it. And then even still, even if they got through it, they're going to be worried about what happens if our trading partners ban you know products that we sell or certain retailers choose not to disadopt them. So we you know we have technologies sitting on scientist shelves right now that that could help us cut down on fertilizer use or uh, fungicide use that, that aren't being used precisely because uh, of this sort of aversion that's been ginned up towards this particular technology. So that's a particular thing that worries me. One positive thing I'll say about mandatory labels is, is you know, that may not be the end of the world is uh, – that you know, a lot of the technologies that are currently commercialized that are on the market today are the sorts that benefit producers by and large. Um, so farmers want to adopt, want to use uh, biotech corn or soybeans, for example. And they do they do have benefits for consumers uh, in in the form of lower food prices and in terms of some environmental outcomes. But the consumers have a hard time seeing that. Doesn't translate very directly to them. And so it's it's probably no wonder they're a little averse to it. You talked about those iPhones, you know, we have in our pocket or, or smartphones. You know, one of the reasons we adopt that new technology is because it's immediately apparent to us what benefits it brings to us. And we and the average consumer hasn't been able to see that in terms of the current biotech applications. But there are a whole suite of new technologies that are sitting out there that may provide more direct benefits for the consumer. So we have these non-browning apples and potatoes and even mushrooms now that that mm-hmm. a consumer can actually see the benefit of. And so I, I could I could see a world perhaps one day where if, if you're the producer of, of that Arctic apple, of that non-browning apple, uh, you know, you darn well bet you better, you're going to label <laughs> the fact that that's genetically engineered because you're providing a benefit for the consumer and you want your brand associated with that benefit that you've brought to the consumer. And so to the extent we have more of those sorts of technologies that are developed, uh, you know, you could see a, a world one day where there are at least certain producers that, that want to label that something is genetically engineered and, and will want to proudly do so. Uh, that this, this product is proudly produced with biotechnology. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it really, uh, you know, consumer acceptance, and I always joke about it depends on which Apple store you go to, whether or not you're going to find people who are excited or recalcitrant to technology. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, so I guess the maybe the maybe towards the last question here is, you know, you've seen some moves by like Campbell's and other companies to voluntarily label, mm-hmm. and if they're meeting Vermont's rules in Vermont, and now you're starting to see that going nationwide, those same labels are available everywhere else voluntarily. How is that perceived by the consumer, and how is that going to affect, in your opinion, the uh, the whole drive to label something if it's done voluntarily already why do you need a mandatory one yeah that's a great a great question and actually it underlies this whole argument about should we have mandatory labeling or not you know the way i'm an economist the way an economist would frame it is just to ask where is the market failure like what what is it that's preventing 
voluntary labels to arise if it's something consumers really want and are truly willing to pay for. And when I look at the evidence, I don't see any compelling evidence of a market failure that's preventing that market because we can look out in the grocery stores today and see all sorts of voluntary labeling uh, that's going on. And um, and so, you know, I think these the big food manufacturers, they're, they're, they're going to try different ones are going to try different things and in a way that's positive that's that's sort of the evolution that happens uh, as the companies are trying to adjust to a new market environment uh, getting back again to sort of the consumer psychology the, the one positive thing i would say about some of the food companies that are, are labeling voluntarily labeling non-genetically engineered is that it provides consumers choice or at least the the appearance of choice and yeah it's more expensive and that, that does two things first it signals to the consumer that this isn't free, that if you want non-GM crops, it's going to cost you something. Um, and as a result, we see that market shares for the non-GM products are typically very, very low. Um, but that ability to, to buy the non-GM provides me as a consumer some level of confidence. So in this whole risk perception literature, one of the big things that drive consumers' perception of risk is their their perception about the about control. Do I have much control over the situation? So for example, driving is actually very risky. It's it's one of the leading causes of death out there, but we as as consumers and citizens don't view driving as very risky and one of the reasons is we perceive that we have a lot of control over it. It's something that that if I drive well and I wear my seatbelt that I, I'm going to be safe. And and so one of the possible reasons that some people are averse to biotechnology is it maybe they feel like well it's just all the stuff that's in the food and i i can't i i don't have any you know ability to control whether i'm eating it or not and so you know i i I have been critical quite frankly of some of the you know organic and other marketing movements but one thing i will say in their in their favor is that the presence of those options in the marketplace, the ability of consumers to choose that if they want to, is probably something that's lowered consumer aversion. Um, even if you're not actually willing to pay that premium for it, the fact that it's over there and you know it exists and I could choose it if I wanted to is something that's going to make me feel a lot better about it. And and so, you know, we'll see how it pans out. But to the extent we have a lot of retailers coming out and voluntarily labeling, uh, you know, could could be something that, that sort of lowers consumer aversion to biotechnology. So, Jason, where can people find you in social media or on the web if they're looking for more information? Sure. So I I blog under my own name. So it's uh, www.jasonlusk, J-A-Y-S-O-N-L-U-S-K.com. And then um, that's my Twitter handle, at Jason Lusk. And uh, so, yeah, follow me there or read my books, Unnaturally Delicious. Or prior to that one, I had a book called The Food Police. Or, or uh, reach out to me by email. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Yeah, Unnaturally Delicious, How Science and Technology Are Serving Up Superfoods to Save the World. <laughs> <laughs> a rather uh, compelling title, and uh, it's it's available like on Amazon. You can download it for I, I think I got it yesterday, thirteen bucks. Downloaded it and uh, really enjoyed it a lot. So I went through it pretty pretty quickly. It was a real easy read. So thank you so much for joining me, Jason. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. Yeah, let's do this again sometime. You're like um, it's like taking a drink of water out of a fire hose. I mean, I really. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, I, I just uh, the amount of good information, and I really appreciate uh, you know your take on this as an economist because it really helps me as a scientist understand it a little better too. So thank you very much. And that's Jason Lusk from Oklahoma State University uh, talking to us about the economics and the public perception of new foods, new innovations, and genetic engineering labeling. 
And so ends episode number 35, or number 35 in the series of Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, thank you very much to Dr. Jason Lusk. It was really an intriguing conversation that was as much fun to uh, go back and edit and move through again and listen to again um, as it was to do the first time. Um, I've had the opportunity to see him speak. Uh, and really, really think he's just such a gives such outstanding information, and really every slide makes your brain jog a little bit more. You gain a lot of perspective about thinking differently about these topics in food and in agriculture. So I'll end there. Um, thank you very much for listening. Please, please, please write a review on iTunes. It really does help elevate our position relative to others under the featured category in science. I was really pleased to look at the science featured podcasts and see us right up there at the top. <laughs> Not the top, but you know, in the um, out of the uh, twenty five thousand science podcasts, we're in the top hundred. That isn't too bad. So, um, uh, so you know, please keep writing those reviews. Um, maybe we'll crack seventy. <laughs> Goodbye, me. Um, so, thank you very much for listening. Tell a friend. Share the science. And until next week, we'll talk to you then on uh, Talking Biotech. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.